front and center, and that's God. And we are seeing how God actually lives with Abraham as Abraham lives out his faith. And the reason for that is twofold. Why are we in this study? It's number one, we want a better sense of how God is actually going to engage us. And so as we see the ways that he engages Abraham, we have that expectation that he'll also engage us in those same kind of ways. But secondly, as we see God interact with Abraham, he opens a window onto his own character. He gives us a better sense of what he's all about and about what he's actually trying to do in this world and how he's going about doing it. And we want to understand that so that we're more in sync with him and more on board with him. Now, just to sort of back up and give the overarching understanding of what's going on here in the Bible, what is God up to? God is up to restoring this world. He is working hard to replace evil with what is good and right. Uh, he's bringing it in line with, what, with only what is good and right. If you think about it, that longing for restoration is deep inside of each one of us as human beings. It's located deep inside our human psyche. Consider for a moment the stories that grip our imagination. I don't care if you think about the stories that Christians write or that secular people write, but the, Christians that we the stories that we tell each other all end with some kind of restoration, the ones that grip our imagination. And you see that at the end of the Harry Potter series. For those of you who have watched the final movie end, it doesn't end with a ruined castle and a broken battlefield. Why would that not work for us? It doesn't work for us because we want more than that. That's not good enough for us. It's not good enough for us that evil is crushed and destroyed. We cheer that. It's good, it's right, it's necessary. But we want more than that. We want to celebrate restoration. And so the last scene is not this victorious battlefield, a battlefield that you can barely walk across with bloodied and, and dirty comrades. The last scene happens 19 years later. It's at King's Cross Station. It's on platform nine and three quarters. And what do you see there? You see a family, husband and a wife, with children, as they're getting ready to send one of their kids off to the Hogwarts school. Not only do you see that family there with this new beginning, but you see them surrounded by a larger community of all of their friends. And there's joy in that picture. It's new beginnings. It's, it's restoration. Or if you're from an older generation, Potter doesn't do it for you. Consider how Lord of the Rings ends. Ends exactly the same way. It ends with a restored shire, the place where the hobbits live. It's a land that's cleansed of evil. It's full of new families, full of new children, full of new plants, full of new trees. It's a land full of joy and promise. That's what we're longing for. We're longing for restoration. Or if you're from a younger generation than the Potterites, or if you watch these with your, your family, think of how the third How to Train Your Dragon ends, The Hidden World, how that one ends. Hiccup is now married to Astrid. Toothless has his mate. Both of them have children, and the story ends with them coming back together. Relationships are restored. There's the promise of new beginnings. No story that captures you, grips you, no great story, simply ends with the removal of evil. They don't end that way because we know that's not enough. We want more than that. We want restoration. We want that, why? Because that's what God wants. We are images of God, and the things that he longs for are the same things that we long for, the things that he's working toward we'd like to see. It's how the last book of the Bible ends, the book of Revelation. It does not simply end with a world that is... Uh, sorry, guys, can you get this? This is not working for me. Sorry about that. How the book of Revelation ends. 
doesn't simply end with a world that's ravaged by war and disease and judgment. It ends instead with the new heavens. It ends with the new earth. It ends with the new Jerusalem, where God has now come to live with his people. It ends with this city, but there's something special about the city. There's this river of life that runs through the city. There's this tree of life that's planted alongside the river of life. And as you look at that, you see God and his people now enjoying relationships together. And you're getting a picture of a restored Garden of Eden. That's the goal that God has been working toward ever since evil first invaded the garden. And that's the goal that you start to see hints of here in Genesis chapter 18, hints of how he's going to actually bring that about, and hints of why he's chosen Abraham and how that's going to advance what he's doing in this world. So let's start then with what is it that's going to characterize this future world? It's going to be one of righteousness and justice. And that's woven into why God actually is having this conversation with Abraham. He says that it has something to do with the fact that he's chosen Abraham, not simply to bless him, but also to bless the nations. And he starts to unpack that part of that blessing has something to do with righteousness and justice. Reading verse 17 again. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. It's the blessing that he's been saying to him over and over through the chapters. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Verse 19, God has chosen Abraham for a reason. He has purposes for Abraham. He has plans for him, goals for him. He has things for him to do. We've been seeing repeatedly throughout these chapters that God has decided to bless Abraham, not so that Abraham has a, an easy life, not so that he's surrounded by all these good things that he collects for himself. Instead, God blesses him so that Abraham now has the resources to play the part in this world that God has for him. It was never God's intention that Abraham would become the center of his own world, that he would just sit there and absorb all of the blessings, that he would be happy just to have a good family, to have wealth, to have success, to have a place to live. That is not why God blessed him. Instead, God is blessing Abraham. He's giving him the things that he needs so that Abraham then has the resources to bless other people in the same way that God is blessing him. It's when you realize that the life of faith is not about being a consumer. It's not about seeing how much blessing you can accumulate in your life. It's, it is about gratefully receiving from God, but it's about gratefully receiving with an intention so that you can turn around then and be as generous as God is with you. If God doesn't bless you, you don't have anything to give. He has to bless you so that you can take place, uh, take a part in what he's doing. But if you're not giving, and we're not talking here simply financially, we're talking about all of the gifts that God has given you. If you're not giving those things to bless others, you can't take your place in what God is doing. Instead, what are you doing? You're marginalizing yourself. You are putting yourself outside of what God is doing. And this is a very real danger for people who live in the Philadelphia suburbs. We live so close to the American dream that it can actually be a substitute for what God is doing. You can end up with the American dream to have so much stuff, to be involved in so many activities, to be kept so busy that you fool yourself into thinking, I have a blessed life. I have everything that I need. And you never stop to consider, maybe I'm on the outside of what God is actually doing. 
you think, okay, well, how do I know that, Bill? How do I know whether I'm on the inside or I'm on the outside of what God is doing? Verse 19 again. Look at the purpose for why God has chosen Abraham. It's so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. God has chosen Abraham for a purpose. The purpose is that he will communicate to other people this way of the Lord, that he will train his children, that he will develop his household so that they are doing righteousness and justice. And so Abraham is supposed to understand how God engages him, how God engages people in general, the way of righteousness, the way of the Lord. And he is supposed to take that way and communicate that to this smaller community that he has. And this community then interacts with each other in what? In ways of righteousness, in ways of justice that say, this is what God is like. And they do that with each other. They do that with the people around them. That's what the whole world is going to look like once God restores it. God's going to take all those destructive patterns of behavior that are caused by sin. He's going to replace them with righteous patterns. And he takes Abraham and he chooses him so that Abraham will now start a community on this earth that is reflective of what's going to happen in the future. And God plans for those ways, those patterns of living to be handed down in community, to be handed down in families, to be handed down in households, to be passed along in these close, intimate relationships, to be handed down in small groups where people are sharing their lives with each other. Luke spoke earlier about how important community groups are to renewal. They're, they're important to renewal. They're important to all of the church. Why? You cannot learn the ways of righteousness and justice just from coming to church on Sunday and hearing a sermon. You can't get righteousness and justice from reading a book or listening to podcasts. Those are all helpful. But you get righteousness and justice as you work that out in a smaller group. It's another thing, however, that's going to be hard for us in the Philadelphia suburbs. Because you start realizing that this kind of handing down takes time. It takes a lot of time. Time that doesn't always look like it produces a whole lot. You start having that same conversation with your family that you've had before or with your friends that you've had before, and you think, this is very inefficient. We should be past this by now. This doesn't seem to be getting communicated. It's messy. It does not fit into a fast-paced professional lifestyle. This is why it's so hard to get on board with what God is doing, and it's why it's so easy to substitute the American dream instead. Because the American dream is a whole lot easier. It is easier to teach math and science than it is to teach righteousness and justice. It is easier to communicate English and Korean, soccer and basketball, violin and dancing. It's easier to teach all of those things than it is to teach someone to live out righteousness and justice. This is a hard thing for parents to hear. We don't want to hear that, that we have to take extra time now to pass along the ways of righteousness and justice. What do we want? We want the, the professionals to handle that. Send them to the church. Let the church teach them righteousness and justice. And then what do we do inside the church? We say, well, we don't really want to do that either. Send them to the counselor. And we say to the counselor, you teach them righteousness and justice, and then when you get done, th then bring them back. You realize this is an exhausting kind of a process. We want to come home to families that, that don't demand that much out of us. We won't put in a long, hard day, come home to a smooth-running family. We want the same thing when we come to church. We want to come, we want to find a seat, we want to sit back, and we want to what? Consume. We want to absorb. 
We want to be with people who like us and who accept us. We want a parking space that's relatively close. We don't want this hard work. And what does God do? He breaks into that sleepy world that we would create for ourselves. And he says, I have something better. I have something a whole lot better than that. I've chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. This is a big part of what it means to be blessed by God and to be a blessing to others. We live in a world of moral confusion, and God comes and says, this is what righteousness and justice is. That's a blessing. And then it's a blessing to be able to give that away to other people. And so this is one of those things that you need to wake up in the morning and not just ask yourself, how tired am I? But you need to wake up in the morning and ask yourself, who can I help to keep the way of the Lord today? It needs to become part of your prayer life so that you're asking the Lord, Lord Jesus, please don't let me be outside of what you're doing today. Help me to see the people who need to know something of righteousness and justice today. It needs to be something that you actively mentally think about as you get in the car and you go to community group. And not just say, well, I'm going to sit back and I'm just going to absorb and, and, and consume whatever is there. Instead, I need to think, how can I nudge us tonight a little bit closer toward righteousness and justice? God is hard at work. He's working hard to restore this world so that it's filled with righteousness and justice. And he enters into our lives and he chooses us now to create this community that experiences it here and allows other people to have a taste of it as well. Now, I need to confess that I'm a little nervous here. I'm concerned that, that someone, or, or maybe several someones, will hear this wrongly. See, if you come out of a background that says, here's what you need to do to make God happy with you, or here's what you need to do, here's what you don't need to do to make God happy with you, I'm, here, I'm afraid that it'd be very easy to hear this wrong. To hear this and think, oh, great. Here's another set of rules for me to try to follow. Here's another crushing burden to add to that long list that I could never uh, do anyway. I, I was always failing at that. I thought that's what grace got us out of. I thought we were done with all of that. Here's what you have to do stuff. It's a very common way of thinking if you've come out of a background that said, it's up to you to make God happy with you. Inside the church, we have a way of talking about that. It's kind of our, our shorthand. We call that legalism. When we talk about legalism, if you've not come from that kind of a background, it means the self-attempt at moral reformation. It's your trying to make yourself into a good person, a moral person, a decent person. But it doesn't actually do that because legalism in this form is always inwardly directed. You're not trying to become a good person so that you can benefit someone else. You're trying to become a good person so that the other person thinks that you're a good person or so that you think you're a good person, or so that maybe God thinks that you're a good person. It's really sneaky. You end up with this good-looking exterior that's horribly motivated, that does not have an interest in loving other people, doesn't have an interest in blessing other people. Instead, you're focused on using people to build your own reputation. And so you end up doing what's right, not because that blesses someone else, you do what's right because it's the right thing to do. Or you end up following the rules for the sake of the rules. And that is not what God is talking about here in Genesis 18. It's one of those things that he wants to liberate people from. And so he works hard in all of scripture 
to say, you cannot be good enough for me. But I love you, and I want you, and I want to enter into your world, and I want to make you good enough for me. That's what we call grace. And when you finally get on board with that, and, and it starts to sink into your mind, it gets past all those defenses, and, and it sinks into your heart, there's this liberating feeling that comes out of that, and you say, oh my goodness, this, this is wonderful. I never could do all that anyway, and now I find that God actually loves me. And then you start to wonder, well, okay, but, but what do I do with those commands that God has? What do I do with God's laws? What do I do with those things that he says I'm supposed to do? And oftentimes what people will do is they'll take the pendulum and they'll swing it from legalism to the opposite extreme. You can call the position license. It's where you say, I guess it really doesn't matter what I do now. I can live any way that I want to live. I, I, I can say the kinds of things that I feel like saying. I don't have to put a guard on my mouth. I don't have to care about what that does to somebody else. I can do things that I know are wrong, and it won't matter. God will forgive me. He'll be patient with me. So now where there used to only be rules, now there are no rules. There's no guides. There's no standards. There's no expectations. And it's ironic, but both of those positions take something that's really super important, part of God's character. And instead of seeing the beauty of it at its highest point, they bring it down. So legalists do what? They take righteousness and they bring it down to a manageable level and they say, I can do that. And people on the opposite side take justice and they bring it down. They say, it doesn't matter what I do. God will accept me. He's okay with me the way I am. Now, obviously, both of those positions are wrong. And you can see that in the way that God talks about what he's doing with Abraham. God says he chose Abraham. But if you were here several weeks ago, as we started this study, chapters 11 and 12, you realize there isn't anything positive in Abraham that God would say, that's, an, that's excellent and I can really use this guy. Instead, we see that Abraham is this older man from a pagan background and he's slow to faith. After God chooses him, he continues to do things that are wrong. There isn't anything in Abraham that would cause God to choose him. God simply does so because he loves him. That's grace. But here's the rest of grace. God doesn't choose him so that he can stay a faithless pagan. He chooses him to bring him into something else so that he would be this person who commands his family to doing justice and to doing righteousness. In other words, there's a causal relationship here with grace and living righteously. You don't live righteously in order to get grace. That's not the, the gospel. But once you've been given grace, it brings you into this new life, not a wasted life, where you actually do start to live righteously for the sake of other people. That's the world that is coming, a world where there's only righteousness. If there's any doubt as to how important righteousness is to God, the next section makes it very clear. God tells Abraham, verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And Abraham reads between the lines. He's understanding what God is saying there, that God says he's about to wipe the cities out actually takes place in the very next chapter. And so God is not saying here, I, I want to investigate this because I'm a little curious. Instead, God's getting ready to judge the cities based on their wickedness, based on their unrighteousness. 
And that's when you realize that the future that God has in mind is not simply one filled with righteousness. It's, a, it's one that has no unrighteousness in it, no wickedness in it. And what you're getting here in Genesis 18 is a small taste of that coming judgment, a small taste of what God is actually going to do one day in the future. And you get these every now and then. You, you, as you're reading through the scripture, you get these little places where God brings that coming judgment into the present moment, and he chooses to act on it. And sometimes those are surprising. We get used to God holding his wrath back and holding his justice back and, and restraining himself and being patient and being merciful, but we tend to forget that it's mercy. And we start to say, well, I guess this is just really okay for the way the world is. And then we come across one of these passages and we stumble over it. We stumble over it in part because it's offensive to us. We don't like to hear about a God who judges. And so some of us, we, we come across this kind of a passage and, and we get a little scared that God's angry and we start to wonder, well, maybe I, I misunderstood who God is. Maybe he's going to be angry like that with me sometime. Others of us don't get scared. We are upset. We don't really think that what's going on is that big a deal. It, it surely doesn't, it, it shouldn't rise to this level with God. Maybe we're not offended. Maybe we're just embarrassed. We don't want anybody to know uh, any of our friends to know that this is kind of what God is like. And we, we feel like, man, God's kind of extra here. Like, okay, there's an outcry, I get that. But to wipe out an entire city because of that, that, that feels a little like you're over the top, a little out of control. If you start going down that road, you start thinking, well, okay, this time there's an outcry, but there's other times when God judges and there is no outcry. There's simply consenting adults. And God still judges, and that rubs us the wrong way. And okay, we saw earlier that phrase that there is the way of the Lord. That means what? There are many ways that are not the way of the Lord. And God says, I take that very seriously. I judge ways that are not the way of the Lord. Why? Because that damages people. It hurts people if you treat them in ways that I have not said to treat them. And human beings, the majority of us, don't like hearing that. We don't like other people telling us what to do or not to do in the realm of morality. We don't even like it when God does that. We don't like God telling us what does and doesn't hurt someone. Some of that comes from inside of us. Some of that comes from the world around us. It sends messages to us, signals that we actually buy into. We hear them so often, we just start to think that they're normal. Things like, if it feels good, do it. Or you can do what you want as long as it doesn't hurt someone. We start to buy into that. Or we start to think, well, I get to decide what's right for me. We believe that each person, then, is their own moral authority. And we come across a passage like this, and we get offended that God would disagree. We get really offended when God backs his authority by bringing judgment, like he's about to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. I think one of the ways it's helpful to start thinking about this is to back away from moral authority and recognize, you know, we don't have this problem with every authority. There are some authorities that we just buy into. For instance, when I go into our kitchen and I go into the, the pantry that we have and I pull out a candy bar and I turn around and I start studying the calorie count on it, I have never once looked at that and said, oh yeah? Says who? I want to see the data for myself. I don't think I believe that. Who do these people think they are? Tell me how many calories I can and can't have every day. 
I've never once thought that. I've never been offended. I've never questioned people's motives. I've never thought they were suspect. I've never doubted their testing protocol, their equipment, their assessment. I've never done any of that and said, what do I do? I believe them. I don't know who these people are. You might be these people. I don't know. I, I, but I believe them. I believe you. I, I believe when I see that on there. And what do I do? I put the candy bar back most of the time. We come to this area of morality, of righteousness and justice, and we don't want another authority. We want to believe that we are the authority. Let me give you a couple reasons why it's actually a good idea to believe that God is the authority in this area. Why should we trust him more? Number one, he made us. We all know that. He's the creator. He knows where we started, and he knows where we're going to end up. He knows everything about us. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't know a whole lot about us inside. God does. And therefore, he would be the wiser one to tell us what to do and what not to do. But let's go beyond that. That, that, that one feels fairly easy. Let's go back to the passage. And you recognize there that God cares about people like nobody else does. There's a cry that's coming up out of Sodom, and no one's doing anything about it. And so what does God do? God hears that cry. That cry matters to him. He allows it to bother him, if you want to put it that way. And he goes down to investigate, and he's coming to do something about it. He's coming to bring justice, and you realize he cares about his people, his creations, more than anyone else does. Those are reasons for why we should step back and say, there's reasons to trust him. Let's think about it from the other side. There are reasons, actually, to trust ourselves a little bit less. One of those reasons, we tend to be blinded to ourselves. We tend not to see who we are and what we do. You ever caught yourself being hypocritical? Someone does something, they say something to you, and you get very offended at that, and then you find yourself doing and saying the same thing? Someone lies to you, and you're absolutely indignant, and then you turn around and trim the truth somewhere else? What, why is that? Why do you get upset with this one and not with this other one? Because you don't know you. You're blinded to you. You don't have the ability always to make good moral judgments. We all do that. Why else would you trust yourself a little bit less? Because your morality, your, your sense of morality is growing and it's developing. You ever had this experience? You look back on, on yourself in a younger time period, your, your, in your former self, and, and you just sort of shake your head. And you think, wow, really? I, I, yes, I did do that. What does that mean? It means that you've grown, that your sense of morality is bigger now. It has more dimensions, and it has a closer sense of the way that God actually thinks about the world. And as soon as you say that, you think, oh, my goodness. If I'm closer to God now, that means in a couple more years I'll be a little bit closer, Lord willing, which means I'll probably look back at this point in my life and shake my head then. And that causes me to be a little bit more humble in believing that my sense of morality is always that highly developed. Thirdly, we just don't see very far down the road. There's not a single person in this room who is smart enough to understand all the implications of what you're doing now and how that will affect you 10 years from now. None of us are that smart. You can't understand the ramifications of what you're doing now on the people around you 10 years from now. Frankly, you can't figure that out 10 months from now, or really even 10 days from now. I'm not sure I can do it 10 minutes from now, but we'll let that go for the moment. 
And God comes along and he says, I know the end from the beginning. I know where all these things are going. He's actually able to tease all of that out and understand where things are going. Why would we not trust him over ourselves? Why would we not take his authority over our own belief in those moments? That's when I need to step back and be a little more humble. Admit that I'm very relatively small, that I don't see really very well, and that he's really great big and that he sees much better. And I need in that moment to take seriously my need to learn. See, if Abraham has been chosen to instruct his family in righteousness and justice, that means that his family, his household, has been chosen to what? To be instructed, to receive instruction. I was thinking earlier this week before I actually started looking at this passage. There are things that I'm, I feel like I'm just starting to get a, a handle on in who God is, in, in his character in his nature. And I'm realizing I need to do a whole lot more work if I'm going to represent him well. That's true if I'm going to represent him simply to my family, to my friends. But honestly, I was thinking about you all. And I was thinking, if I'm going to serve you in the way that Christ serves me, I need to work harder. Yes, I have years of ministry experience. I have times that I've studied. I've continued to study. There's a lot that I'm just starting to get on board with. Now, that was not a moment of despair was a moment of a good desperation, which drove me back to the Lord saying, God, I, I need more, what, passion for learning, more passion to be instructed. I need more endurance. I need to pray that, and I also need to work hard this week. If we are going to line up with what God is doing, we're going to have to work. Because when God judges, where do we want to be? We don't want to be outside of that. We want to line up with him and say, that's a good thing, and your judgment is right, and I finally get it. I'm on board with you. That world that's coming, it's going to be one of righteousness. It's going to be one where there is no wickedness. If you just roll down that road a little bit further, maybe that's not so encouraging. Because you start to think, well, <laughs> there's times when I've been wicked. There's times where, where the things that I have done, others have cried out against me. How am I going to enter into that world if I have these things in me that, that, that are not righteous. And that's actually the last half of chapter 18. Abraham's having a conversation there with God. And let me start here first with what this conversation is not. And, and you have to do that because as you study this passage and you study what other people say about it, I think sometimes people get sidetracked. Here's the first thing it's not about. It's not about Abraham being concerned for his nephew Lot who lives in Sodom. Okay, that is not in chapter 18. God does rescue Lot in chapter 19. We'll see that next week, but that's not in chapter 18. Here's what else it's not. This conversation is not about trying to get God to calm down, trying to get him to be a little bit more reasonable and change his mind. Abraham does not dispute that Sodom is wicked. He doesn't challenge God that the wicked ought to be wiped out. That is not what he's doing here. Instead, he's having a conversation with God that turns around the nature and the power of righteousness. It's all about the nature and the power of righteousness in the context of justice and in the context of judgment. Get the, the, the flow here. God is the one who actually starts this conversation. Abraham doesn't. God starts it in verse 20, and the reason that he decides to have this conversation is because, is because he's chosen to instruct Abraham in righteousness. Abraham, then, is responding to God's initiation by trying to understand, God, what place does righteousness have in your world? 
He wants to get a sense of how strong it is, how powerful righteousness is. And not strong and powerful in the abstract, but how strong and powerful it is when it's in the presence of wickedness. He's coming to God, he's, he's interceding for Sodom, and he wants to know, is righteousness something that I can actually use, God, when we're talking about things that, that, that I can in, adequately intercede with? And so he says in verse 23 to God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And in essence, what is he saying? He's saying, which is stronger, God? Righteousness or wickedness? Which controls people's destiny? Which controls people's future when these two come into contact? Which one backs down? Which one overcomes the other? God, will you give everyone in the city what the wicked deserve? Or will you give everyone in the city what the righteous deserve? Notice what he's doing here. He's asking a theological question. But he's not asking it in the way that you and I tend to ask it. He's not asking a theoretical question. He's not asking an abstract question. In chapter 14, he rescued the people from Sodom and Gomorrah. He has names in his mind. He has faces in front of him. And he's coming to God and he's saying, what does theology look like on the ground in daily life? God, will you give everyone in the city what the wicked deserve? Or will you give them what the righteous deserve? And he kind of thinks he knows the answer to this. And so he floats it by God. He says, it's not right that the righteous should have their fate determined by the wicked. The righteous should not fare like the wicked do. That's not just. God, did I get it right? Did I understand you? Have I been around you long enough? And God agrees. He says, if I find 50 righteous people, verse 26, I will spare the whole place for their sake. 50 weight of righteousness is really powerful. You just learned something about righteousness. It's enough to preserve an entire city. It's enough to preserve the lives of wicked people who have no clue that they're about to be wiped out. Make sure you get God's heart here and God's character. He will spare the entire city for the sake of just a very small number. For the sake of the righteous few, he'll spare the wicked many. The righteous few in that sense affect him more than the wicked many do. And God thinks that that's just. God thinks that it is just for a person's future to be more dependent on their connection with someone who is righteous, that their future is more dependent on someone else's righteousness than it's dependent on their own wickedness. In God's economy, righteousness is so strong that justice is served if there's only a few who are righteous. And Abraham says, okay, good, that's who I thought you were. But how few is few? You can ask it from the, the other direction. How potent is righteousness? How strong is it really? Okay, a 50 weight of righteousness is really strong. 50 persons who are righteous, that's really strong. It'll preserve an entire city. But would a 45 weight do just as much? God, what happens if there's only 45? Would you still spare the city? And God says, yes. 
Forty-five righteous people are enough to spare the entire city. And so Abraham continues asking this question. So what if there's fewer than 45? How about 40? And God says, that's still enough. I won't destroy it if there are 40 righteous people there. Well, how about 30? Can the righteousness of 30 people avert disaster for everyone else? 30 is enough, God says. I won't destroy it for 30. How about 20? We're less than half of what I started with, God, but is 20 enough? That seems pretty small. And God says 20 is still enough to cover the sins of the entire city, the sins of all of the men and all of the women and all of the children and all of the youth and all of the young adults and all of the grandpops and the grandmoms. And for their sake, he will spare the entire city if he finds 20. How about 10? I know we're getting down to a really tiny number. Is 10 too few? Or is the righteousness of 10 people so strong that it's enough to avert destruction. God says, verse 32, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it, and Abraham quits. He won't go any further. Start to wonder, well, why doesn't he do that? Does he think to himself, well, surely there has to be 10? Or does he lose his nerve at that point? Does he start thinking to himself, I can hardly believe that God would do this for 10. If God's gonna do it for 10, he'll probably do it for five also. And what am I going to do then? How much further am I going to go down? Can I go down to one? Even if I do, what good is that going to be? Who's ever lived perfectly in steps so they had the kind of righteousness, not grade you on a curve righteousness, that had the kind of righteousness that's completely in step with God at all times? Even if I dared to believe that God would take one, where are we going to find that person who could stand before him perfectly righteous? And Abraham loses his nerve. And God doesn't lose his. Because that's exactly what he had in mind. There was one person, just one, who lived perfectly righteously. One person, Jesus, who's descended from Abraham, who came to bless all of the nations. One person who lived flawlessly every single day for the good of the people around him. One person who obeyed God over his entire lifetime. One who earned perfect righteousness. And his reward for having earned perfect righteousness for decades is that he was judged wicked. You think, why? Because that's the heart of the gospel, that there's a trade, the righteousness of the one for the wickedness of the many. It's the mystery of the gospel. It's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21 tells us. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. God made him wicked who knew no wickedness so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him we might have the righteousness that we would need so that we could enter into that restored world for all of eternity. How do you get that? Same way Abraham did. You believe that God really can do the impossible, that God can take your wickedness and attach it to Christ on the cross, and he can so judge it that it's just gone, that you stand guiltless before God. But you need more than guiltlessness. You need something positive. You need real righteousness to stand before God, and God takes the righteousness that Christ earned, and he gives it to you, and not just to you, but to all of his people. And he does that so that we can enter into that world of restoration that you actually want, 
and that you want to be part of. And the biggest reason that you want to be part of that is because that's where this God is going to be. And you do not want to miss out on him. Let's talk to him for a moment. Lord Jesus, it's beyond our imagination that you actually could make us guiltless and that we could stand before you and that we could enter into this world and that we could start to live in righteous ways. Lord, I pray that, that the power of your gospel would sink down past our defenses that you would wake our hearts up, that you would help us to see the, the sleepiness of our culture and that you would give us a, a longing and a hunger to be in the center of what you're doing, that we'd be with you now and that we'd be with you forever. In Jesus' name. Uh, reflecting